Hello everybody and welcome to the Motorsport Extra podcast. This is a brand new independent motorsport podcast which is going to keep you up to speed throughout the course of this year and hopefully beyond with all the happenings from the world of motorsport. As is a broad church, we'll be talking Formula One, Indy cars, junior single-seaters, sports cars and much more besides. So to introduce you to the team, my name is Ben Evans and I am a motorsport commentator. You may have heard me talking about the World Series by Renault. IndyCar and various other very obscure championships. I'm joined by the man behind the Formula One Fanatic website, the motorsport broadcaster and journalist Keith Collentine. Good evening, Keith. Evening, Ben. You had an interesting mix of commentary duties over the weekend. You were IndyCar and Brands Hatch Club Racing. Yeah, and I also managed to uh, continue my track record of being up against major televised events. So on Saturday night, it was IndyCar versus Eurovision Song Contest. A couple of years ago, the wedding of Prince William, Kate Middleton, Lotus Cup UK highlights on motors. Well, this week, where else could we start but the sensational Spanish Grand Prix? Max Verstappen was victorious for Red Bull Racing, becoming the youngest ever Grand Prix winner after the Mercedes of Rosberg and Hamilton collided. But of course, you already knew that. Yeah, at this point, I think we should congratulate ourselves for deciding to do our first podcast about a race which generally doesn't produce an awful lot in the way of excitement. You know, Spanish Grand Prix, normally pretty processional, not very much happens. This weekend's race was a complete barnstormer, inevitably. So we've got plenty to talk about. It is. Shall we start with the first lap of the race? It was a pretty wild first lap. Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg colliding, going into turn four. What did you make of the incident? Well, uh, this was the moment the entire race turned upon because this was the moment that opened up the way for somebody other than Mercedes to win a race for the first time in, in 10 Grand Prix. Um, and inevitably, a lot of time is going to be spent looking at it because it was between the two championship contenders. Um, in terms of who was to blame, the stewards came down and said it was a racing decision. Initially, when I looked at it, I was a little bit more inclined to blame Hamilton for it. He was the driver coming from behind, and I thought it was a bit optimistic of him to try to make a move down the inside, assuming that Rosberg was going to leave the line clear for him. I don't think that was ever a realistic thing that was going to happen. I mean, Hamilton himself you know, covered the inside line at the very first corner, just a few corners earlier. Why would he expect Rosberg to leave that way clear for him? But the key to understanding the incident I think really is the closing speed between the two drivers and as has come out since then Rosberg had put his car uh, in the wrong engine setting. The closing speed between the two was about 17 kilometers an hour and that's a lot in Formula One terms. The spread for the entire grid in terms of straight line speed was only 13 kilometers an hour. So Hamilton was coming at Rosberg an awful lot more quickly than we tend to see Formula One cars closing on each other um, in this kind of incident. That's why Hamilton reacted so quickly. That's probably partly why he thought he might be able to get down the inside. But Rosberg was completely within his rights to close the door as firmly as he did. That was how Hamilton ended up on the grass. And we all know what happened from there. My take on it was a little bit good on you, Nico, because Hamilton has run him off the road several times previously. US Grand Prix last year springs to mind. And a lot of the real champions, rightly or wrongly, at some point in their career, as they've got that winning trajectory have done that shutting the door firmly on their rivals. Ayrton Senna did it many, many times. Michael Schumacher did it many, many times. And he was laying down a marker that I'm not just going to let you you get past me this year. It's going to be much more difficult. I, I agree. It was a racing instant. Rosberg was in his rights. Hamilton, I think, 
was up against to change Nico Rosberg. A year ago, he wouldn't have shut the door like that. This year he has. He did. And I think the other thing you have to say about that was I think Rosberg knew he had less to lose in that scenario than Hamilton did. Hamilton's the driver who everyone keeps asking him, you know, why have you not won a race since October last year? And this is another one that, that will be chalked up to him not winning. And you have to say again, uh, it came down to the fact that Rosberg beat him down to turn one. I was going to say the the real challenge for Hamilton this year is that every single race, his chance of victory has gone before the end of the first lap. It's been bad starts, bad qualifying, and and that's got to start having a psychological effect because Nico Rosberg just needs to keep him pegged, really, for the next few races, pick up the victories here and there. But it's an increasingly uphill task for Lewis Hamilton. Well, the interesting thing there as well is the next race is Monaco, where Rosberg has won for the last three years running, but maybe not always in the cleanest of circumstances. We obviously had the qualifying incident um, a couple of years ago, and then last year Hamilton was you know, running away with it on course to win, had the mix up in the pits, and that opened the door for Rosberg to win his third straight Monaco Grand Prix. In a sense, although they both live there, they're going to Rosberg's backyard next. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. And for the first time this week, I've started to see the jokes on the internet, Hamilton to Manor, Verline to Mercedes for 2017 coming through. And I'm sure that that's just a joke at the moment. But... The off-track stuff, it's a distraction for Mercedes. As long as you're winning, you're safe in your seat. If Rosberg's got the upper hand, at what point do Mercedes say, actually, more trouble than it's worth? I think we're still a long way off that point with Hamilton. I think, ultimately, I stick with my view that over the course of a full season, things are going to tend back towards Hamilton because I do believe he's the quicker driver in qualifying and I do believe he can still get the job done in the races. So I think this sets up very nicely in terms of the championship because you know we've still got 16 races to go. That was a whole season in just a few years ago. Um, and Hamilton's coming at it from a fairly big points disadvantage, but I do think that he'll cut into it. And in terms of Hamilton's value to Mercedes, it goes far beyond just the fact that he wins a lot of races and championships in terms of um, creating uh, the brand image that they want and showing to people that Mercedes are bought by young, youthful, and yes, black drivers, then that's exactly what they want. Of course, sudden driver swaps do sometimes work out, as we also saw in, in Spain. And if we had been recording a week ago, we'd have been saying, well, were Red Bull just being typically aggressive, swapping Daniel Kvyat for Max Verstappen? As it is, it looks like a pretty good call at the moment for Red Bull. Verstappen winning on his debut for the team but was it as fairy tale a run as it looked, or was it a, a sweet combination of circumstances? It was as close to a fairy tale as you get in a business as cutthroat as Formula One and a business as cutthroat as the Red Bull Junior team, which, as you quite rightly say, Ben, I mean, drivers had uh, exchanged quite easily. It was a fairly harsh verdict on Fiat to, for him to lose the seat just four races into the season. It, it, it's how early in the season he was dropped that really strikes me. Um, but there's no way you can go back and revisit that decision now and say it was the wrong thing to do. Verstappen won the race with a little bit of help from the fact that Ricardo ended up on the wrong strategy, but he also won the race because he was in the position to get into the lead when it was there. And looking at Kvyat's performance over the opening four races of the year, would you say that Kvyat would have been able to do the same? Not necessarily. He'd been seven to eight tenths of a second uh, off 
Ricardo in qualifying on average. Verstappen turned up first race weekend in the car with no prior testing beyond what he'd done in the simulator, was just about four tenths off Ricardo in qualifying, started one place behind him. Back at the first race of the season, Fiat was about 10 places behind Ricardo. So Verstappen was in the right place at the right time. Yes, he got a little bit lucky with the strategy. Other than that, yeah, it was a fairy tale debut. I guess the key is going to be now how Max Verstappen takes it on through the rest of the rest of the year because what's what I find quite interesting is we've got two very youthful sons of Informal One at the moment, Kevin Magnussen and Max Verstappen, and both of their fathers, Jos Verstappen and Jan Magnussen, arguably had too much too soon. They came into Formula One a huge flurry of hype in the mid-1990s, and neither of them really had the career that that their talent deserved. And I really get the sense that, particularly with Max Verstappen, the way that, that his father's managing his career, that Jos has reflected on the mistakes that he made and is making sure Max doesn't repeat them. I think that's uh, that's absolutely right. And Verstappen, it, it was a slightly extenuating circumstances, obviously, as far as Jos Verstappen's concerned, because his rise into Formula 1 was accelerated by JJ Leto's accident at the beginning of 1994, which is how Jos Verstappen ended up in the Benetton so soon. Um, but that early promotion you know, did him absolutely no favours. Max Verstappen has changed, I think, how we look at how quickly young drivers can rise up into Formula 1. And we might be sat here talking about how it's going to change things to come in the future, but obviously since Max Verstappen's come into Formula 1 and as a result of it, the FIA has really clamped down on how young drivers come through the ranks and brought in its you know, contentious super license point system, it's brought in this new age limit and, and various other things as well. Um, so I think for future drivers, future Max Verstappen's and, and future Kevin Magnussen's, they're not perhaps going to have to face quite the same questions because it's going to be much more tightly regulated how they get there in the first place. So where does this leave Daniel Kvyat? Because it's quite an odd situation in that there's no obvious Red Bull Junior coming through. We'll discuss Pierre Gasly later, but but it looks as if Toro Rosso continues and Red Bull don't sell the team, that he's probably secure for another year. But at the same time, you can't see any other teams queuing up to snap him up. Exactly. At this point, you'd say the odds are pretty much evens that Fiat's going to be able to keep himself in that seat for next season. Um, but let's not take anything for granted. He's had a heck of a blow to his morale. Um, and the question now is going to be how he comports himself in that Toro Rosso for the rest of the season. Didn't do too badly uh, at Catalonia. Came away with a point. Um, but Sainz, and, and here's a name we haven't talked about yet, Sainz actually had a quietly, extremely good weekend in the Toro Rosso. Obviously, you know, he was overlooked for the promotion next to Max Verstappen. That in itself was probably not a huge surprise, but Sainz qualified pretty much where the car belonged. He got it up to third on the first lap. He was fighting with the Ferraris. Uh, he brought it home in sixth, just behind Bottas. There wasn't, I think, any more in that Toro Rosso. I think if Verstappen has still been in that team, at best, he might have been one or two seconds up the road from Science. Science did a super job. Now, Formula One is if backwards. And just to go into a little bit of speculation, Red Bull are an organisation that notoriously don't do regrets. But you just wonder, with the success of Max Verstappen, whether or not they might have been thinking, should we have paid off Mark Webber at the end of 2012 and promoted Antonio Felix da Costa, who was really their last junior with that level of momentum, success, and and that that ability it looked like to just jump straight into F1 and be so competitive. I think the situation they're looking at now, as you've just said, where there isn't an obvious 
next driver in waiting does make you wonder whether they hurried things along a little bit too soon. I think many of us were very surprised to see Da Costa get passed over. Yeah, he had a bit of a duff season in 2013, but he'd been so good at the end of 2012, and the only reason I think he didn't get a promotion then was just that they didn't have a space at the time. Um, I'd, but I would pick that one out. I'd possibly pick also Alex Lynn um, because he had some excellent success in Red Bull colours. Didn't seem to make an awful lot of sense that, that he didn't get to continue with them when, again, there wasn't really anybody directly behind them that, that, that was in line for promotion. But, you know, as we've just said, Red Bull aren't looking for the next, you know, I don't mean this as a criticism, but they're not looking for the next Nick Heidfeld. They're looking for the next Sebastian Vettel. And I think in Max Verstappen, they've definitely found it. Well, let's turn our attention then to some of the juniors moving up through through the ladder, because in Barcelona, we had the opening weekends of the season for GP2 and GP3. So in GP2, Alex Lynn and Norman Nato split the wins. And in GP3, it was Charles Leclerc and Alexander Alban who are victorious lots of talking points i guess a good starting point is not a bad weekend for british drivers with alban and lynn taking victories they did really well lynn had a bit of a shaky start um, to his gp2 weekend uh, it didn't quite work out for him in qualifying although he was up on the second row um, and the race it was one of those races where lots of little things just didn't seem to work out for him his, his pit stop wasn't particularly good i think the biggest kick in the teeth was uh, he passed sergio canamassas for fifth place with about four laps to go uh, but then it transpired that they'd hung the checkered flag out too early so they took the results of the race basically based on before when he'd made the overtaking manoeuvre. There can't be many crueler ways to lose a pass than that, so that was very harsh for him. Uh, but super impressed with how he put that all behind him on, on Sunday morning um, and uh, took the lead away from Raffaele Marcello um, and yeah, brought home an absolutely solid win. Alexander Alban, as you say, let's not forget, uh, beat Max Verstappen to, I think it was the KF3 Karting Cup back in 2010. Um, going back quite a long way, really, in Max Verstappen's career. Um, but no, a good, a good solid uh, win for him in GP3. Both the GP3 races, it has to be said, even with this new car, were a bit processional. But let's see how they do um, at circuits in the future where they're a little bit more conducive to overtaking. So coming away from Barcelona, it's Pierre Gasly at the top of the GP2 Championship standings. And I don't well, know what, I Gasly, don't... now, there's a talking point when we come to Red Bull Junior drivers. Exactly. I don't know where I stand with Pierre Gasly. On one hand, the, the guy is metronomically consistent. On the other hand, he's not won a race since Max Verstappen was in nappies. He's not won well, since Max Verstappen was in carts, quite literally. Yeah. You know, it, this was back in the 2013 when he was still in EuroCup. And, uh, and to an extent, I think he's been lucky to retain the Red Bull support, partly because there aren't any other juniors uh, around him. Yes, he's consistent, but, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time following him in Formula Renault 3.5, and he, he never looked like winning a race. He was always up there, but he was never spectacular. Uh, and that's going to continue into GP2. It always strikes me as, and again, this sounds like damning with faint praise. It isn't really meant that way. He strikes me as a driver who'd be fantastic in the World Endurance Championship. He'd be really good in an LMP1 car. The kind of, you know, quick, very quick in qualifying, solid, safe pair of hands. But he, he strikes me as kind of 99% a Formula One driver. It may still all come together. It may click for him. Certainly, you know, coming out and putting Pramer's uh, team's car uh, on pole position in their first ever race weekend. That's an excellent achievement. Um, but he didn't have the pace when he switched tyres at mid-race. Um, he was overtaken for position at the Circuit de Catalunya. Not an easy place ordinarily to lose the lead of a race on the track, but it happened. Uh, and like you say, that statistic, that monkey on his back, hasn't won a race since late 2013. He's got to get that off his back very, very soon. No better place to do it than Monaco coming up next. Of course, talking of things being on people's backs, I don't think Sean Glell really wants to give a piggyback to Antonio Giovinazzi, but that's what happened. It was 
a big crash. Giovinazzi will probably have felt a little bit sore from it. It just struck me as one of those drivers wanting to make a point, not giving each other enough space, and it cost them both their races. I wouldn't be that hard on Giovinazzi. I thought he was reasonably well alongside Galil, and I thought Galil made two distinct moves. And the second one came when Giovinazzi was already pretty well alongside him. Um, I... I was very, very surprised that the, well, maybe surprised isn't the word, I was very unimpressed that the stewards took no action on that one because it seemed it was a completely avoidable accident. He put him well up into the air. The really surprising thing also is just earlier on in the same day, uh, we'd had Matt Parry in the GP3 race get a pretty swinging penalty for squeezing Santino Ferrucci really, really hard about three times as they came down the pit straight. I mean, this was shades of Schumacher and Barrichello at the Hungaroring a few years ago. On Saturday night, we had the last chance to enjoy the IndyCars in action before the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500. It was the third victory in succession for Simon Paginot, despite a frantic mid-race where Connor Daly was the star. I guess the main talking point, Keith, is who can beat Pagano? He's been absolutely incredible. It's funny that we went into the season asking when is Pagano going to get his first win for Penske. Now we're five races in and we're getting a bit sick of it because he's won the last three in a row. Uh, and particularly when you think, you know, back at Long Beach, he had that slightly controversial win with Scott Dixon cutting the pit lane exit line, but he's given the best possible response to his detractors by winning the next two in a row. And his victory on Saturday was absolutely commanding. I mean, you were commentating on it. You saw it all. Um, it never looked like anybody else was was going to beat that sort of freakishly yellow car. I mean, the the most impressive phase of the race was we had had a safety car about two-thirds race distance. That jumbled up the order with different strategies. Connor Daly was leading. Pagano was caught in traffic, actually behind Helio Castro-Neves. But then when Daly pitted three laps early, that succession of in-laps from Simon Pagano and then the way they got on it on a very cold down his outlap was just absolutely phenomenal. It was great strategy from the Penske team, but their driver delivered. And, and that sort of performance is why he has been so unstoppable this year. Yeah, I mean, from a strategy point of view, obviously you always expect, you know, the Penske powerhouse are going to have it over a little team like Coin. It was great to see um, Daly uh, finishing so high up, but absolutely, I mean, I mean, Paginot, he's got the best part of 80 points lead um, over the rest of the field at the moment. That's incredibly unusual in IndyCar. This is normally a championship where the field is extremely um, tightly condensed. It, it's really hard to get a win, uh, sorry, a run of successive wins going. Um, but Pagano's done it and he's only dropped something in the region of about 20 points all season long. So um, that's incredibly impressive. He'll almost, you know, he's basically guaranteed to still be leading the championship table when they come away from Indy. Perhaps the only question we've got left, I think, with Simon Pagano is can he do a win on the ovals? All his races so far have come on road and street courses. Ovals now not as big a part of the IndyCar calendar as they used to be, but still a very important part. Uh, and certainly it was the Indy 500 coming up next. It's a double points weekend. Um, he's got to prove his ability on that kind of track as well. That said, I mean, last year he had the quickest car at the Indianapolis 500. It's just the race went away from him. So if he can align that pace from 2015 with the confidence 2016, I'm struggling to see how he's going to be beaten. It's certainly a changing of the guard though, isn't it, at Penske? Because Castro Neves is consistent as ever. Juan Pablo Montoya will always pull out the results. But Will Power must be starting to worry about his employment for 2017 because he's had a wretched start to this season and it continued in Indianapolis. He spun it away 
very early on, but he was just off the pace all day. Was a very oddly undercooked performance from Will Power, and someone who's dependably really good on this kind of circuit. Obviously, his start to the season was messed up uh, at St. Petersburg when he uh, had the health problems that kept him out of the car on race day. Um, but like you say, that spin he had with uh, battling Alexander Rossi, a rookie in this category, albeit a pretty experienced rookie, driver with Formula One experience. Um, but, you know, Power was trying to get around the outside of him and just kind of lazily let the car run wide onto the grass and spin. It, not the kind of mistake you can make. And he never really looked like battling his way back in there. Um, and again, like you say, he's got a Penske beneath him, um, you know, should have had all the pace, um, but just didn't. And he's languishing down uh, in 10th in the point standings now. I have to say, I expected to see him make quicker progress than he's had after that bad weekend at the start of the season. The driver really impressed me, actually, at the weekend. You, you touched on it. was Alexander Rossi. Looked really hooked up for the first time this year. Seemed to be enjoying the movement of the car underneath him. Was really competitive. Again, the way the strategy unfolded maybe took the result away from him. But I think we'll see him on the podium before the season's out, given the progress he's been making from St. Petersburg. Now a few races in, he's going to enjoy the street courses, and then he, he, he's going to fly someone like Road America or Mid-Ohio. I think definitely this run of, of road slash street courses um, have helped him find his feet in the car a little bit. Um, he's another driver who I think a little bit of a question mark in terms of how he gets on the ovals. Certainly when I spoke to him a few years ago about his sort of future racing prospects and whether he'd be interested in going into IndyCar, he was very cool on the idea of racing on the ovals. I mean, they obviously are incredibly fast and incredibly dangerous dangerous um, so let's let's see how he does at places like uh, Indy and, and Texas and Pocono later on in the year um, but I think definitely the road courses mid-Ohio uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing the cars back on Elkhart late later in the year that's going to be absolutely thrilling um, and definitely Rossi is one of the drivers I think uh, I mean for rookie of the year honors I think he's, he's definitely got to be up there and if I if I was a gambling man if I have five pounds I would say a good result for Rossi and the Indy 500 will see him in the Marussia for the USGP in Austin. I think that's uh, very, very likely to happen. But I just wish I'd taken the advice I'd written in a column for uh, one of the websites I write for um, last week where I tipped Max Verstappen to win a race before the end of the year. I think he was on 41 to 1 to win in <laughs> Spain. So I really regret not taking a piece of that action. Another talking point from the IndyCar was the first corner collision between Tony Canaan and Sebastian Bourdais uh, and you and I were having a bit of a disagreement about this on Twitter it's not like us on Saturday no because uh, my take on it was if that had been Sage Karam it would have been a ban or it would have been some sort of sanction but because it's Tony Canaan he, it got waved off as a racing incident, but I thought it was 100% his fault. I thought it was a lot more benign than that. I think the first corner at the Indianapolis road course is not a corner that anybody would sort of intentionally want to put that way if it wasn't a roval course. You go from an extremely wide lane into a really, really tight lane, and time and time again we see accidents. And it doesn't matter if it's IndyCar or Formula One. I mean, that's the corner where Juan Pablo Montoya's Formula One career finished because he had a collision with his teammate. It's the kind of corner that invites accidents on the first lap. And yes, Canaan was changing his line, but there was other cars moving around on their lines as well in front of him. So to me, racing incident. But you're shaking your head, so I know. Yeah. So crashing is a discretionary activity. And as you well know. As I well know, and I've exercised that discretion on several occasions. But Tony Canan did have the option in the run to the first corner to use his left foot on something called the brake rather than changing line and driving into another competitor. That's why I think it was his fault. Yes, if they were having to break at a certain point, yeah, he did the right thing to change his line, but he could have just braked and got through the corner. I think that's fair enough, but like I say, if I, if I was the steward, it would have been a rare, lenient call for me. I'm normally banging on the table and wanting to see drivers penalised. The other single-seater action, of course, that we had at the weekend was the Grand Prix of Poe, and this very open European Formula 3 season continued. Ben Barnacote 
alongside Max Gunther, became the first driver to score more than run victory. Yeah, nine races in and seven different winners. It's been remarkable. And this in a championship where we've got about a dozen fewer cars than we did last year, you'd think it would be much easier for one driver to get out front uh, and dominate. And no shortage of talent in, in the category either. Like you say, drivers like Lance Stroll and, and Ben Barnico. Um, always fabulous to see these cars running around Poe. Basically, I think the fastest things that I get to race around Poe these days, aren't they? There's nothing else. Not legally. <laughs> yeah, I think it is the it is the blue ribbon event around Poe. Formula 3000 obviously doesn't go there because Formula 3000 doesn't exist anymore. But I think what's what's really interesting this year, and I think it's very good for the championship, is that Premer aren't dominating because having had a number of conversations with team principals in a rival Formula 3 championship with teams that have exited European Formula 3, the domination of Prima was one of their, their principal factors and the money the drivers are bringing to Prima as well. It was just driving the cost to an unrealistic level. And so to see the wins being shared between more teams is really healthy for the series. Yeah, like you say, it's essential for the, the health of the championship. And the wins were shared between three different drivers uh, around Poe. We had uh, Ben Barnacote, George Russell, and then Alessio Lorandi on the Sunday winning the main event itself, the Poe Grand Prix. Um, there was some spectacular action. I mean, F3 cars around Poe, it, it's such a narrow, tight, demanding circuit. It's one of those where even if the racing isn't that great, it's just a joy to see you know young drivers giving their all on a really tough, demanding little track. Um, Barnaco scored a particularly impressive win in really, really bad conditions um, on Saturday morning. Um, we had a little bit of a set two involving um, Sergei Seti Kamara and a few other drivers causing a bit of a pileup um, in the later race. Um, but the other big event, or the other big talking point um, that weekend, of course, was Nelson Piquet Jr.'s attempt to uh, go and race in the championship, which, I mean, that generated a lot of different opinions. Obviously, the FIA stepped in and said he wasn't allowed to. What was your take on that? I think it's a real pity because it was Nelson Piquet had everything to lose and nothing to gain because he was going in as the yardstick for all these other drivers. 2004 British F3 champion, XF1 driver, reigning Formula E champion. The guy is super talented and he, he would be a great yardstick. So I think, I think that was a great pity. What was the, the plus side of it was that I and a couple of others were getting into a Twitter conversation with him the night the news broke to try and coax him into racing some Formula Ford 1600 cars at Brands Hatch and Silverstone later in the season. And that's actually looking like it might well happen. Oh, well, that's fantastic. So yeah. there's, there's silver linings to everything. OK, I'll come and watch that then. I'm, I basically agree with your sentiment, but I also I understand why the FIA stepped in and said no, because ultimately, you know, is Formula 3 a championship that's out there like Formula 1 or the World Endurance Championship or the World Rally Championship or the DTM to, to generate sort of public interest and, and get people watching motor racing? Not so much. I think it's supposed to be more for up-and-coming drivers, and they have obviously introduced this this structure to prevent drivers who are very, very experienced coming back and racing in there. Obviously, after last year, we had Felix Rosenquist winning after six years in the category, which is an awfully long time. Um, so. I do actually sympathise with the FIA's position on this. I understand why they did it. I thought some of the criticism that they got for it was a bit unfair. It, it doesn't come from a, a position of being churlish and, and not wanting to let the championship promote itself. I think that fundamentally it should be a championship for upcoming drivers and that is not Nelson Piquet Jr. Yeah, I, I sort of agree. I fundamentally disagree uh, in that... Every motorsport is in a pretty difficult financial situation. Frankly, anything that's going to get people through the gates and people watching and sponsors getting involved in the sport is a good thing. I also think there's nothing wrong with having non-point scoring wildcards from a higher level 
dipping into things. So when I used to race in Formula V, we had Nick Tandy come and compete in one of our rounds, and all the drivers in the paddock unanimously thought it was just a fantastic thing to have that because it gave a true yardstick about how quickly those cars could go and the level of driving that could be attained. I, I Again, I agree with the sentiment, but and this is where I'm perhaps going to be a little bit controversial, what happens when you have a rich team who's got a driver in the hunt for the championship late in the year, they want to bring in a really, really good ringer to help protect him from perhaps a less well-funded championship rival. So they go to Formula One or wherever and they get the best possible driver they can afford and, and bring him in and affect the championship in that way. I think the FIA has got to protect its junior championships from something like that, which, while it would be good from an entertainment point of view, I think could undermine it from a sporting point of view. Yeah, although it has happened in the past, of course, when we had Volta Grubmother in British Formula 3, and the high-tech team brought in Renga van der Zander as a ringer mid-season to try and take points off Daniel Ricciardo. So, yeah, it, there, there, if, if you really want to do that, there are ways around it. There, there are enough up-and-coming drivers who would qualify you could bring in as ringers and spoilers. So... Yeah. But talking of, of the wealthy and well-funded, it's not been Lance Stroll's season, has it? I think there was there would have been an expectation that he'd have kicked on to a few more wins this year, particularly with the Mitre Prima behind him. He's had one victory, but he, he's going to be really fighting if he wants to win the title. He's got a fight on his hands. He has still got the points lead in the championship, and he, he's... Yeah, he, he's sort of there or thereabouts, but it's a huge season. That, that, that's the thing you have to, I think, keep in perspective with uh, with Formula 3. I mean, we talk about F1 still having 16 races to go. These guys have got dozens and dozens of races still to go. Um, so I, I think he's still got time to find find his stride. Remember back 12 months ago, I think at this stage, uh, Antonio Giovinazzi was still leading the championship in, in F3 after Poe. But um, Felix Rosenquist obviously came on incredibly strongly in the remaining two-thirds of the season. So, yeah, I think it is a surprise that Stroll isn't a little bit further ahead, particularly given the, the excellent experience he's got from the championship 12 months ago. Um, he does need to raise his game, but he's still got plenty of time. Just to close off single season then from last weekend, congratulations to Dean Stoneman for his victory in the Indy Lights. That was a wonderful result to, to see, given everything that Dean's been through over the past few years. Hey, we agree on something. <laughs> Excellent. But also the first Indy Lights race, the uh, the restart at the end was absolutely crazy with uh, Dean Stoneman, Ed Jones and... Uh, Santiago Urrutia. Santiago Urrutia. I get confused because they insist on calling him Santi in the uh, American coverage. But that battle between the three of them was some of the best action I've seen all year. And that segues very nicely into this weekend because Ed Jones and Santiago Urrutia are both graduates of the Euro Formula Open Championship which is racing at Spa alongside the International GT Open and the Formula V8 3.5 Championship. And you're going to be there eating frites? I certainly will be. The car boot has been emptied in preparation for several bottles of Belgian beer and several cases, in fact. I've got my order. Well, let's let's start very quickly with the Euro Formula Open because this is a championship I've followed for the past few years. It's not necessarily been the most glamorous championship, but we're seeing the graduates doing the business, Ed Jones and Eurotia, in Indy Lights. And this year, I think there's two drivers who are really exciting in the series. Leonardo Pulcini, who's Italian driver, he won the first race of the year, super fast with the Campos team, real championship favourite, but also the son of the IndyCar legend, Brian Herter, Colton Herter, abandoned his plans to race in British Formula 4 to go and race in Europe. And is already super fast. Well, he was he was racing in Formula 4 in Britain last year, wasn't he? He had a, a pretty good season up against... He was racing in what was Formula 4 last year and is now Formula 3, and he was going to be racing in what was MSA Formula and now Formula 4. 
and your wonder why it's confusing. He was racing in Britain last year. He was going to race in Britain this year. He's not anymore. He's racing in Europe. Now, what was really interesting about Colton Herter, first race of the year, Shades of Hamilton Rosberg, Jack Aitken, who was doing a one-off race, was trying to get heavy with him. Herter stood his ground, took them both off. Proving a point, you might be the reigning two-league Euro Cup champion. That's my piece of track, and I'm going to fight you for it, and I'm not going to yield. Well, that segues nicely into this weekend in Spa, because Santiago Urrutia and Ed Jones are both graduates of the Euro Formula Open Championship, and that's racing alongside the International GT Open and the Formula V8 3.5 series. Quickly start with the Euro Formula Open. It's a championship I've followed for the past few years. It's essentially a, a junior Formula 3 category that is a rival and a feeder to the FAA Formula 3 Championship and GP3. Two drivers, just to get some advance notice in on for you, Leonardo Pulcini, the championship favourite, super quick young Italian, but also Colton Herter, who's the son of the IndyCar legend, Brian Herter, really quick driver and also really uncompromising. So I think that's going to be a very interesting season as it progresses. That's their second event, so the third and fourth races of the year. It's also going to be the third event of the season for the Formula V8 3.5 Championship. Uh, and this is something you and I have followed very closely for, for several years, Keith. Very different look and feel to the championship this year. But we've had some great racing so far. And I think it's come as a bit of a surprise. I mean, you and I, I think, were quite pessimistic in the off-season when we saw some of the entry lists about exactly how good the championship was going to be. But we've had four different winners. Um, and frankly, all four of the races have been pretty exciting, pretty close. We've had battles for the lead, battles for lower positions. Um, and we've got Tom Dillman kind of starting to stamp his authority, I would say, on, on the season so far. He's been up on the podium all the time. Um, he's got that breakthrough win at the Hungara ring. Spa-Francorchamps is where we're going to see, is he now going to establish himself as by far the championship front, front runner and put a bit of daylight between him uh, and the likes of Aurelien Panis and so on. I think the other big question, though, is can Mathieu Baxivier finally deliver the kind of potential we all expect from him? Well, I think what's going to be really interesting is... Arguably, Tom Dillman's the most complete driver in the championship. He has been racing at that level for several years. He's not with the most complete team. And I suspect that they are going to be learning with setup as they go each weekend. Whereas you've got the Fortec powerhouse with Pietro Fittipaldi, a rookie, and Louis Delatraz, a rookie. Louis Delatraz, in particular, super quick, particularly the Motland Aragon. Very strong team behind him, but can he step up to match Dillman? The same arguably goes for Aurelien Panis with the Arden team. Again, super team a driver who's still very much in development. The Delatraz is an interesting case because he obviously started the season really strongly with a win at Aragon, but then you think back to his Euro Cup 2-litre campaign last year, he was also very strong at Aragon there as well and was kind of nursing the lead that he built up there all season long. Um, so perhaps he's been flattered a little bit by his, his strong track coming up so early in the season. Is he still going to be there uh, as we get on to you know, all, all the different tracks to come throughout the rest of the season? He has shown up pretty well so far, but um, when's that next win going to come um, is what I'm wondering with him. But like you say with Dillman, um, driving for AVF, um, that is a little bit of a weakness for him in the Sunday races, particularly when they have the mandatory pit stops. And we saw this again at Aragon when he was uh, going up against Panis for the win. Um, the slightly slower turnaround on the pit stops and maybe a little bit of naivety on the strategy side didn't serve him particularly well and, and cost him a chance to use the pace he had to try and get out in front. So I think the other element that's going to be really interesting at the Spa weekend is that three of the teams in the championship have also got teams either running the Euro Formula Open or the International GT Open and they're suddenly going to have a wealth of data to add as they go. So the Teo Martin Motorsport team, they've got Euro Formula and GT Open team, you've got the RP Motorsport squad, they've got lots of data coming out of their 
the Euro Formula cars and Spirit of Race, which is Machiavax Xavier's team. That's AF course Ferrari. And so again, they'll be there. It means there's more mechanics, more resources, and potentially the opportunity to share a bit more data. Yeah, and LP Motorsport, of course, already having had that win um, at the Hungaroring, going to go there in, in really strong shape as it is already. So I think it's very important to the championship to see the new teams and, and, and since all the, the change in the turbines of the off-season has produced some new winners um, because they need to be up there at the front you know, for the health of the series. And also, on a slight tangential note, it was great to see Jean-Denis Delatraz making his Formula 1 comeback at the weekend in the Monaco Historic Grand Prix. I missed that. I will have to find some footage. What he was he driving? Something very exotic and very lovely. Very carefully. And he didn't get lapped. Well, his son doesn't spend much time getting lapped. His, you know, Louis Delatraz is clearly pretty quick. Also coming up this weekend, we have got the Berlin E-Prix, which could be the final round of this year's Formula E Championship because the Moscow race has been cancelled and the destiny of the London race is to be decided in the courts later in May. Yeah, it's obviously not an ideal situation for the Formula E Championship. They're putting the kind of best facing that they can. And the Berlin race itself has, has undergone some changes because last year they raced uh, around a circuit in the old Tempelhof uh, airport. Uh, they've had to move that because the airport is now being used to, to house um, refugees um, because obviously Germany's had a, a very big influx um, from towards the south east of Europe. Um, so with that in mind, they've now got a completely different circuit and potentially in a more interesting um, location, um, which is great. But like you say, that, that sort of uncertainty hanging over the championship, I think is something they're going to be very, very keen to play down. Yeah, I mean, their PR team deserve a medal for some of the... Uh... The, the way that some of this has been reported. It, it's been a really odd second season for the FAA Formula E Championship. So I was lucky enough to commentate for the, the public address at Battersea Park at the season finale last year. And it, it really felt like there was something behind it that, particularly on Sunday, thousands and thousands of people there. It's the only time I've ever gone to work on a Monday and been, my voice had been heard by colleagues and by clients. And so people were watching it and really engaging with it. But for whatever reason, that doesn't then seem to have kicked through into season two. It's the difficult second album year for Formula E, really, isn't it? Um, and, and obviously the chopping and changing with quite a lot of the venues hasn't helped. And it's, it's a bit disappointing because the actual championship contest itself has had a lot to commend it from a pure motor racing point of view because they've opened up the competition uh, in terms of some of the development. And that's given us a situation where you've got Sebastian Buemi in, in arguably the quickest car, but Lucas Degrassi doing a really super job uh, in his machine to... Uh, get himself up into the lead of the championship. Um, so I think there are some positives there um, to be had, definitely. But like you say, uh, in terms of the attendance and certainly in terms of the uh, viewing figures, um, it's kind of not trending the way they want to. But I think for now, the organisers are content to take the big picture and particularly pay attention to the kind of traction that they're getting on social media that, and, and on the internet in general. They're very geared up to, to that level of approach. I think you're right. I mean, I, I know because I know a lot of people who, who used to work at the organisation that off track in the the off season they had a massive turnover in their team in that a lot of the as you get with any growing business a lot of the, the people who were involved when that the championship was starting out moved on to new opportunities they've brought in newer people and so that there has been a degree of learning i think once you get jaguar in next year hopefully it, it's going to go kick on something more for me the big risk is probably twofold firstly that you are seeing the best funded teams now consistently at the front of the field that you didn't last year uh, and that always is just something around the level of competition the attractiveness to come into the series the second thing is actually making sure there's a supply of cities that want to keep hosting the events 
because the the road closures required just to make the track safe a no small ask. What, what is encouraging, I think, from that point of view um, is that they don't seem to have had too much difficulty attracting some very desirable um, car names to the wider sort of the whole Formula E ecosystem, whether that's just um, sponsoring a particular race, as I think they've got BMW sponsoring one of their races coming up now, or um, actually putting their technology into the cars as Jaguar are doing, and that's a heck of a coup to get to get Jaguar involved. Um, from that point of view, the business side, the credibility side, you know, they're getting the serious names, and, and you look at the state of motor racing in general. Where are the new manufacturers coming in? Who've attracted manufacturers recently? Well, you know, quite a few have gone to the World Endurance Championship, although Nissan's attempt to race there obviously didn't go particularly well. A lot of names have gone into Formula. E, and these are names that are not being attracted into Formula One. I think that's a very interesting situation. I think it's partly because of the value. Certainly in season one, it was between one to two million pounds to run a car for the season or a pair of cars. Is it in Formula? And as a return on investment, that is incredible compared to to almost any other championship, that's sort of GP2 entry type money, but with much more exposure. I, I absolutely agree that it's partly to do with value, but I think it's also partly to, to do with uh, the liberty to make use of your own intellectual property. And this is a big thing now in the, in the internet age, in the social media age, you know, these companies are spending vast sums of money to build these cars. And if you go into Formula One, you're then told, oh, you can't you know, film your car while it's at a race and make use of that footage. Absolutely not. But then you look at something like the World Endurance Championship, Ford are able to put out their own little highlights package, which shows bits of the whole race and also focuses on their Ford GT cars. And that's the kind of thing that you know, manufacturers want to be able to do. You cannot do that in Formula One. And I think for, for some people, along with the other things you've said, that just makes it a non-starter. Well, hopefully the Battersea Park races will go ahead and the objections from the residents will, will be overcome. So to then turn our attention finally to, to the DTM, and they got a huge vote from me over the winter by getting rid of all of the little weenie aero devices, which meant if you came into contact with anything so much as a butterfly, your race was ruined. Uh, and immediately it seems to have a positive effect on on the robustness and quality of the racing. Yeah, I, I have to be perfectly honest here and hold my hand up and say I hadn't seen the first race weekend for the DTM this year, but I heard pretty positive things about it from that point of view. Um, what they also did over the winter, and which I think has probably also had a bit of an effect on the competition, um, is tweak the weight levels of the different cars and give BMW a bit of a performance break. And one of the problems they had last year was the way the balancing system worked was we had a situation where one team, and I think it was again BMW at Zandvoort, as I recall, filled all of the top seven positions and then the next weekend because they had to put ballast on or their rivals got to take ballast off they were absolutely nowhere they've also tried to um, I think reduce the, the the effects of that um, and help make the BMWs a little bit more competitive whether or not you think that's okay from a sporting point of view is is a point to discuss um, and I think we'll see over the balance of the season how well that's worked but um, I absolutely take your point aesthetically and in terms of the competition not having so many of the aero flicks that definitely has got to help. So plenty to look forward to this weekend. Well that's almost it for this edition of Motorsport Extra. We'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback on the show and also get your questions in as well. You can do that on social media to either at Keith Collentine or at Ben Commentator on Twitter. And that's the best way to get in touch with us. So we've already picked up. It's a very busy weekend of racing ahead. What's on your plate, Keith? I'm very excited because the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500 is coming up. I'm going to be commentating on uh, both days of the qualifying sessions uh, from IMS. So I'm uh, really looking forward um, to doing that. It's going to be a really, really special event. Um, so yeah, lots and lots of uh, revision about IndyCar coming up for me. How about you? 
I'm very excited to be going to Spa to talk Formula V8 3.5, International GT Open and Euro Formula Open. Also to visit my favourite coffee shop in the world, which is there's a, a cafe on top of the Pitts building at the Spa-Francorchamps circuit. You can sit there with a coffee in the morning and look out over a Rouge and the rest of the circuit. It, it's one of my highlights of the year. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this edition of Motorsport Extra Podcast. We really hope you've enjoyed it and we'll look forward to talking to you again very, very soon.